The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast... I have an extra special guest. What can I say about Ben Horowitz? He is the co-founder uh, at Andreessen Horowitz, a $12 billion famed VC uh, in Silicon Valley. I kind of get the sense that Ben is the inside process guy who looks at the world of venture investing and technology as a series of engineering problems to be solved. Uh, his partner, Mark Andreessen, also... Uh, a programmer slash engineer, um, I get the sense, looks at the world slightly different. And the two of them have really put together a unique firm in Silicon Valley that has been wildly successful. If you are at all interested in technology, startups, venture investing, management, culture, or hip hop, you're going to find this conversation to be absolutely intriguing. So with no further ado, my conversation with Andreessen Horowitz's Ben Horowitz. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Ben Horowitz. He is the co-founder and general named partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a highly regarded venture capital firm located right on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. He earned his MS degree in computer science from UCLA, following a BA in the same space from Columbia. He is the author of several books, including The Hard Thing About Hard Things and his most recent book, What You Do Is Who You Are, Ben Horowitz. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. So you began your career at the legendary Silicon Graphics in 1990. What was the technology scene like way back then? Well, it was very different um, in that it was just tech, there were just technology people in it. So it, it's really broadened since then in an amazing way. And, and the reason was, you know, we were selling technology to technology people. It was all B2B. There wasn't really consumer uh, right. businesses in the space. And then Silicon Graphics was kind of the Google of its day in that it was where all the best engineers went. Um, you know, it kind of had all the panache. Uh, we had done the kind of animation for the Terminator movie, which was like a big deal and that kind of thing. So it was it, it was a super exciting time and just amazing, you know, when I got there, how smart everybody was, um, which, you know, in life, you just never get put in a situation unless you're in a company like that. Mm -hmm. quite, quite interesting. How did you move from Silicon Graphics to um, LoudCloud? How did that come about? Yeah, well, so uh, the big kind of step in between it was a company called Netscape, mm -hmm. um, which I joined in 1995. And uh, What was I, your role in 95 with them? Yeah, so I started as a product manager um, on the kind of server product line, which ended up being very important because, you know, Microsoft kind of took the money out of the browser product line, right. which was our first one. Uh, and that's although, that, although that didn't <clears throat> work out all that well for them, it eventually led to the antitrust suit, which they lost. I yeah, no, it definitely, we definitely put the hurt on them, uh, but they kind of 
forced us to sell the company. So, uh, you know, it was an interesting one where I think they won the battle and we won the war. Also, we broke the Windows Monopoly, which was, you know, the Win32 API was the kind of key linchpin of it. And because of Netscape, people stopped writing to that. And that kind of enabled the kind of way for everything else that and has happened since. So from uh, Netscape, <laughs> your your partner, Mark Andreessen, mm-hmm. famously created um, the first browser. I think he was still in college. Yeah, yeah, out, he was 18 years old. Yeah. Yep. Then came out and launched uh, Netscape, which very quickly went public, really kicked off the whole dot-com. Yeah, 15 months old when it went public. Who was? Netscape. That's unbelievable. Yeah. That 15 months. We, we yeah. Even today- <laughs> It, the, as crazy as things have been, although the argument is it's everything has gone much further in the opposite direction, let me bring this back to you. Um, so from Netscape going public, how did you roll into LoudCloud with Andreessen? Yeah, so Netscape went uh, public, but then uh, eventually, you know, it was a very rough kind of a legendary battle with Microsoft. And right. uh, we sold the company to AOL in 1999. Uh, 1.6 billion, something like that? Uh, no, well, Netscape, this is a Netscape sale. Right. So Netscape sold, at the time it was 4.2 billion, but at the point the deal closed was $10 billion. Oh, really? So yeah. that's a giant transaction. Yeah, amazing in, transaction. In mid-90s, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it, look, it was a great outcome for a company that was four years old. I mean, right. you, can't, you can't be mad at it. Um, but at AOL, uh we were. I was in charge of kind of AOL e-commerce, and the the interesting thing at AOL e-commerce was, you know, it was a way like you come, you pay AOL ten million dollars, and they put you in the AOL mall. That's kind of how the internet right. worked in those days. And a walled garden. Yeah, the walled garden. And once you were in the mall, uh, the problem was that your site would just basically collapse because AOL had so much traffic it would basically turn it on you and you would just not even be able to handle it. A fire hose, absolutely. Oh my God, yeah. And so that gave us the idea to create what was, you know, kind of the original, or at least the original named so uh, cloud computing company, LoudCloud. The the Um, idea is that this is scalable dynamically on the fly. If a ton of traffic comes in, just add a few few servers and, and you don't just crash, you get to take full advantage of that traffic. Exactly. And exactly. so, so let me back up a little bit. What I'm really curious about, you start <laughs> at Netscape as a middle manager. How do you rise through the ranks and how do you eventually um, mm-hmm. become tight with Andreessen? Yeah, well, I think there were two things um, and they, they were separate. So the relationship with, between Mark and myself was due to kind of, there's a phenomenon in companies where if you think about um, product strategy and the ability for any individual to create a new pro or like to create a new product that works like that lands in the market is a very kind of rare skill it's kind of the rarest skill you have in a company and even in a really big company there are only like five or six people who can do that who can Mm -hmm. create a new product and get it to market and he i and i were like whatever two of the six at the company and so we became friends uh over that. And then I think the rise through the ranks was more, look, almost nobody in Silicon Valley actually cares about or puts effort into like management and developing people. And Mm -hmm. so I kind of realized that early and I thought, well, you know, I ought to do that. um, And then that'll distinguish me. And I think that's kind of what led 
me to being a senior exec and then a, a CEO. That was a conscious decision. Hey, we're ignoring our staffing. We're ignoring the people who work for us. And if I find a way how to work with these people, manage them, motivate them, et cetera, that's a positive career move. I mean, was it that yeah, well, calculated? Well, um, you, you know, I don't know if it was that calculated, but that's kind of how it unfolded in that, uh, look, you get rewarded in a tech company for kind of having the best ideas and kind of knowing the technology and the products and the market the best like that. That, that always gets you points and people mm-hmm. usually don't even notice how well you're kind of running your team, um, at least in the short term. Over time, it becomes obvious. And uh, so that was a big deal. I think that's that was a big deal for me anyway. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. So you go from Netscape to LoudCloud. Eventually, LoudCloud becomes Opsware. It gets sold to HP for $1.6 billion. Uh, and you stuck around HP for a couple of years. What was that like? For one year, <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I learned a lot. Um, you know, HP at that time was, I, I would say, kind of past its heyday for sure. And, you know, it had gone through, you know, a, a bunch of CEOs in succession, um, which is never generally good as, you know, the culture kind of gets twisted around and so forth. Uh, and I think that the thing that I learned was, um, you know, a company's culture kind of goes bad when nobody feels like it's their company, when they all feel like they work there. And I think we had gotten to that point with HP where nobody felt like, okay, HP's my company. It was like, I work Meaning no equity participation? They don't feel no, like no, a stake of no, ownership? No, it's not a financial incentive. It's a, it's more of a um, spiritual ownership. Like this is, my, I'm proud of my company and where I work and so forth. And, uh, you know, I'm going to make sure that I represent in the best way and the work that we do is high quality and all that kind of thing. Um, they had lost that. And, you know, I'd never seen a company that had lost it entirely. They had it yeah. and then lost it. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, you knew working in Silicon Valley that they had it better than anybody. Uh, you know, the HP way, um, mm-hmm. you know, Dave Dave Packard was just a legend as a CEO and a manager. And... Um, you know, and that was kind of, they built a lot of the culture of the whole, all of Silicon Valley. But by the time I had gotten there, you know, in the acquisition, uh, you know, and, and there, there's this kind of thing, which maybe you have seen it. People either get rewarded at work for caring or for not caring. Yeah. Meaning that like- How do you get rewarded for not caring? Well, let's say that um, the company can't make a decision for whatever reason. It's too bureaucratic. So you work your butt off, you- figure something out, you have a new idea, a new project or whatever, you try and bring it forth and get a decision on it and like it goes nowhere because nobody can decide. Then you're punished for caring because you spend all that time Mm -hmm. and you get just nothing but frustration. Meanwhile, the guy who was playing video games at his desk, like that guy gets rewarded because he did nothing and he's probably going to get the same pay increases. No negative consequences for not caring versus actual time waste and energy waste for caring and trying to do something. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the early days in terms of raising money and deploying it. Mm-hmm. What was that like when you guys were first launching uh, A16Z, as as it's known yeah. amongst a, a small group? Well, it was interesting because we ha- it had that quality. There's a quality that you always want, and I understand this better as a venture capitalist than I did as an entrepreneur. 
but you always really want it when you're starting something new, which is you want people to say, you're crazy. That's the dumbest thing that I've ever heard. Because if you don't hear that, then you don't actually have a breakthrough. Because if it's obvious to people, then like it's not then that it's great. obvious. Right. Yeah, it's not that great an idea. Huh. Um, and so we got that big time, which was awesome. So, you know, we went and we uh, spoke. When you, were, when you were launching Andreessen Horowitz. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. was that a function of we were right in the middle of a meltdown or just general who needs another venture capital firm? Well, it, it was those two things. So it was, you know, 2009 was the worst time, I think, in the last 30 years to raise a new venture capital fund. Only only two new ones were raised, us and Kosla Ventures. And of uh -huh. course, Vinod Kosla is a super legend in right. the venture capital business. Um, so like, yeah, it was a super bad time to raise. Nobody needed another, yet another venture capital firm. And then our idea behind it, which was we were going to use um, Michael Ovitz's CAA as the blueprint uh -huh. for the firm, everybody thought was the dumbest thing that they'd ever heard in their lives. I mean, it was just like, what are you talking about? Like, this is nothing like Hollywood. You can't do that. You guys are, you know, that'll never work. Like, it's been tried a thousand times. You know, like er everything, like, it's so dumb nobody would ever try it to. Like, it's dumb and it's been tried already and didn't work. Like, so Explain yeah. the CAA blueprint, what you were doing and how different that was from typical VCs. Yeah, so basically, if you looked at... Um, the talent agency business before CAA, when and Michael started it in 75, I think. Um, it was kind of, you know, you had, you looked at any firm, you had agents, and then you had kind of people in the mail room because there was no email, so you right. had to deliver the mail. You remember this, Barry. Uh, it's an old kind of school thing. Are you saying I'm old? Is that what you're <laughs> suggesting? Well, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of at least close to me. Okay. <laughs> um, and I then you I, had- I think I actually have a few years on you. Yeah, okay, good, good, um, good. I'm 58, you're 54, something yeah, like 53. that? Yeah, 53, okay. yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, then you had secretaries and like that was the firm and and the economics were you get 10% of whatever an actress made or, you know, an actor or that kind of thing. Um, and so- as, as an agent, the firm would generate 10% override yeah. or 10% commission on and their- some would go to pay for the secretaries and the mailroom guys, and then the rest would go to the agents, and you know that's kind of how they rolled. And so kind of as a result of that, every agent kind of was a little bit you know playing for himself in that- uh, It was an eat his, what you he had kill. His own network. Yeah, eat what you kill. Your network is your network. You know the guys you know. And so- you know, and that's how it worked. And then when you were, if you were like a great actor and you were choosing a talent agency, you'd always go with the one that had the other big time actors, right? Like it's just an obvious thing. Right. And so the rich got richer and the kind of same firms had been the top for, for you know, decades. Uh, so then Michael comes along and he flips the model and he goes, he, so he and his uh, kind of founding partners deferred all their commissions for the first several years and built what he called the franchise, which was the professionalized network for uh, talent agency business. And that basically uh, manifests itself in the, uh, the pitch meeting where they would pitch the talent. So the way it worked at William Morris was you'd go in, you'd meet with your agent. They'd say, oh, yeah, I know the president of uh, like Warner Brothers Pictures and I'll get you into that and da 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 and it was that was kind of the pitch. 
you go into CAA, they had 30 people sitting around the table. The first person would say, I manage book publishing. Here are the relationships we have with all the publishers. Here are the new books coming out where I think that you would fit as we turn them into screenplays. And the next person would say, I'm in charge of music, and here's how we can cross-promote you there. And then the next person would say, I'm in charge of international. Here are the Japanese television commercials we can slot you into. So it was just an overwhelmingly powerful network. And if you fast forward, you know, 15 years later, of course, Michael became the most powerful man in Hollywood, and they owned, you know, whatever, 90% of all the top actresses, screenwriters, everything. And uh, it, they transformed the industry. And now everybody runs like CAA today. But all like ensemble time, practices like Oh, that. yeah, absolutely. Um, so we thought, wow, venture capital looks just like this. Like, uh -huh. this is exactly how it works. You got a bunch of, like, partners, and they are, like, jack of all trades. They do BD, and they help you with recruiting, and they do this and that. And they don't do any of them well, and we knew that because, like, you know, we'd experienced it. And so we said, oh, we're going to do the CA model here. And everybody said, uh, you guys are stupid. So <laughs> that's when we knew it would work. Yeah. So so the transition from being both a entrepreneur and somebody who was on the receiving end of venture capital, mm -hmm. that sounds like it very much colored the way you wanted the firm to run. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the other uh, kind of big idea that we had was venture capital was kind of oriented around you had this inventor and you would give them money and then when the company if the invention worked and people liked it then you would bring in a professional ceo to build the company that was right. the general motion um and they, we had a couple of observations on that one if you looked at the history of technology companies, the greatest technology companies were generally run by their inventor founder for a very long time from, you know, Thomas Watson at IBM, Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett at Hewlett Packard, Bill Gates, um, you know, and then later on Mark Zuckerberg and all these kinds of things. And so we thought, you know, that's interesting. Um, and then as we looked at our own experience, you know, being kind of inventor and, you know, in my, in my case, CEO, like we knew that professional CEOs could not be taught to innovate. So like you could teach an innovator to be a CEO, but not necessarily a CEO to be an innovator. And so we thought, wow, what if there was a venture capital firm that actually helped a founder become a CEO? And we thought it was two parts, the CAA power network, which right. gave you a network like a professional CEO's network. And then, like the know-how, like what is that job? How do you do it? Help them get skilled up. And so that was kind of the idea behind from, the firm. From the launch, the idea wasn't let's find entrepreneurs with great ideas and eventually we'll find a way to turn that into a company. Right. You were looking to create a method to take entrepreneurs with good ideas and turn them into good CEOs of good companies. Exactly. From day one. From day one. Yeah, and, that was the and, original idea. And the rest of Silicon Valley did not embrace that? No, you know, like, cause they, uh, you know, they had been old school and they, and look, in their defense, it used to be way harder to get ready to be a CEO. Because if you think about like tandem computers, um, since you're 58, you remember tandem, uh, in order to get tandem to market, you had to build manufacturing, you had to build comprehensive customer right. support and professional services and a direct sales channel to get Twitter to market. You needed like three guys with laptops and right. AWS and like you were gone. and Very so, different today. Yeah, very, very different. Plus, you know, they used to go public a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. There was um, relevant to, to that concept about three guys and a laptop. 
in in and I apologize if I'm confusing books because mm-hmm. both your books kind of all are jumbled in my head. <laughs> no worries. Um, I learned the most important rule of raising money privately: look for a market of one. You <laughs> only need one investor to say yes. It's best to ignore the other thirty who say no. That sounds like that comes from real experience. <laughs> Sadly, yes, yeah, no. So that, <laughs> that that's the hard thing about hard things, right? Um, but. Yeah, no, that's right. You only need, I mean, that's the beauty of raising money. You just need to convince one. And I think uh, entrepreneurs get discouraged sometimes, you know, particularly if they have a particularly novel or breakthrough idea that's difficult to understand because, you know, if it if people can't pattern match it, then, you know, it's, it is difficult to raise money, but you just need one. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And since we're recording this, Right after the relaunch of Silicon Valley, the show HBO show, mm-hmm. your firm was a consultant to the first season, at least. Yeah, yeah of, my of, partner Mark, mostly. right? Yeah, your yeah. partner Mark. Um, I think a lot of the rest of America looks at Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. and they only know it through shows like that. <laughs> what do you think the biggest misconceptions the rest of the country has about Silicon Valley? Um, or is the show just dead on? Even the stereotypes and the exaggerations are all based on people we know. Well, you know, like all shows, it's a very kind of cartoonish version of, of how it actually goes. I think the biggest misconceptions are, one, like it's crushingly hard to build a company. I mean, it is like emotionally and kind of crushingly hard that's a great phrase oh yeah i mean i think sean parker said it's like you know eating glass it's just (laughs) like and that's what it feels like at times um because like you go out you tell that you have this idea you're so excited about it you raise money like from like you know generally you start with like your best friends or like your parents or like that kind of thing or like somebody anybody you know with money um and then, you know, you hire the best people you can find, you know, and, and then you spend all your time on it. So really the only people you end up knowing in your life are the people who work for you, the people who gave you money because like all your time's on the company and then starts going wrong. And you go, okay, like, well, what happens if this fails? And it's like, well, my, like, that's like, not only do I let down everybody that I care about, but like, that's my whole life. Like, it's just going like, right. to fail with me. Um, so that kind of pressure is not like something that you experience. I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you're uh, a soldier or whatever, you feel you you have even worse pressure, but like it's a very extreme pressure. And and then you're always hiding it as CEO because you never want anybody on the outside to know there's something wrong with your company. And so that, you know, that part of it is is really, really difficult and the hours are just Brutal. Crazy hard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, and then, you know, things don't work. They go wrong. You, you're running out of money. Like, customers don't like the product. Like, things blow up. People scream at you. It's it's a very, very tough thing. For any so, entrepreneur, I would say, like, even the smallest entrepreneurs go through this. So, since we're going to talk in a moment about your new book, which is all about culture, I know people outside of the United States who have said to me, the genius of America culturally is that you don't punish failure. You're you're describing the pain and agony of failure of not succeeding. Yeah. But we seem to be one of the few places that it's not quite a I don't want to call it a badge of honor, but it's not punished in the United States. Hey, you tried something that didn't work, try something else. Seems to be more of a philosophy here than in most of the rest of the world. And some people have credited that as the genius of Silicon Valley. What what are your thoughts? 
Well, so it is <laughs> to say it's not punished. I think is um, a little bit. Of it. it isn't relative to Japan. Right. Um, I think that's true. You know, there's not the shame. You're not expected to commit Harry Carey at the right. end of it. Even in uh, Europe, yeah. if you try something and fail, it's pretty difficult to launch a second company. Yeah, and that. Um, I agree, you know, like the, the kind of rewarding of optimism, although like we're getting, I, I feel like it's, um, I mean, well, it seems like WeWork's getting punished pretty hard right now for failing. And I would say that, you know, to contrast that in terms of like how they're looked upon and, and like he got a lot of money for himself and all that kind of thing. $1.7 billion, not counting the money he got actually coming up with the We company name and selling, yeah, it, selling for, it to them yeah, yeah. right yeah, as well as yeah. as well as rent going out and finding buildings owning them himself and then leasing but that it. was a, that was the story more of what leverage meant than uh what like it means to fail i think what it means to you know if you look at even you know little companies when they fail now get like pretty viciously attacked in the press and but do those yeah. entrepreneurs go on and are they capable of Re- now I it's don't know. It's difficult. If- it's difficult. It is. Like I, I, I don't think it's <laughs> that easy to fail as an entrepreneur and go on. It is certainly easier than in other countries, and I think that um, from a societal perspective, uh, there's definitely more support here. But I think the and look among venture capitalists for sure. Mm-hmm. Venture capitalists are very forgiving and will fund you even if your last company failed. So it's not. But in terms of like how you're perceived by people in your circle, kind of people in the broader world, it's pretty rough. Uh, And then the people who work for you, I think most importantly, it's very difficult. There are a few entrepreneurs who do such a great job that they can take somebody for four years or eight years out of their career, get them no financial benefit, and then like start that one again. Let's talk about the book. You pretty much begin by saying, Culture is everything in business and sports and life. You you write a lot about it. How can a young company that is just getting off the ground develop a culture and maintain that over time? Yeah, and I think that um, – so there's a couple of things in that question that I think are important to understand. One is um, you don't necessarily have to maintain the exact same culture over time. Cultures do evolve. It's not like uh, whatever a mission statement or something like that. Um, and and I don't get the sense that you are the biggest advocate for those sorts of uh, firm mission statements that I don't never think change. they do. You know, like there are these kind of, there's a lot of this uh, survivorship bias in business where mm-hmm. like you look at something after the fact and go, oh yeah, they had a great mission statement or a cult-like culture or a big hairy audition. It's like, if you that's probably why they didn't succeed. You know, like I, I doubt that that was the thing. Like you the need thing to was look- probably like the phenomenal product they built and then right. like- the rest of it shaped up around them. In other words, go look yeah. at the 10,000 companies that failed and see how many of them had a great mission statement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've seen many. Um, <laughs> so I don't think that's what it is. And, and look, when we're talking about culture, we're talking about, and I, Bushido has a great definition of it, which it's not a set of beliefs. It's a set of actions. Um, and so that begs the question, look, how do you get people to behave how you want them to behave when you're not there? So like, why do... Why does that person return that phone call that day and not like a week later or not never? Um, why do people stay at work till 8 p.m. and not 5 p.m.? Why do people stay at the Four Seasons versus a Red Roof Inn? 
when you do a deal, are you optimizing for the price or the partnership? Like all these things are your culture. And they're not in the mission statement. They're not in the KPIs and the OKRs and all these kinds uh-huh. of things. And so how do you program program them in turns out to be a very, very kind of complex effort and not easily done. And I think that, um, you know, which is kind of the rationale behind the book. Uh, and, you know, it is hard to start it right at the beginning of the company because you don't know what you want to be. And mm-hmm. who you want to be has a lot to do with your actual business strategy. So an example of this if you take Amazon, right, they have a very frugal culture, you know, and they like enforce it in all kinds Famously, of ways. Famously, the desk on top of the two, the door on top of the two yeah. sources as a desk you reference in the book. Yeah, and the whole thing, right? But, you know, they have a strategy where that makes sense because they want to be the low price leader. And that's like in like Bezos's like original loop about, you know, his, his wonderful drawing about like how Amazon works and all that. Like, that was fundamental to their strategy. Apple doesn't have that cultural value. <laughs> um, Nor do they need it. No, no, they, it would be antithetical to what they're doing because they want to have, they want the most beautiful products out there right. and like they're going to spare no expense. And Steve Jobs actually got fired the first time for sparing no expense, uh, you know, which was on culture for him, but not for Scully. Uh, so you get, you know, the culture has to be built for the strategy. Um, and so as you are developing your strategy, you might not be able to really know what you want your culture to be in the beginning. And then, look, as you scale, you run into different kinds of issues and so forth. Um, but, yeah, there there is definitely – I would say there are techniques, but you've got to – you know, to get it right, you really have to understand culture in the kind of – the gestalt of it, like the mm-hmm. entire thing. And uh, that's um, how I approach the book and, and, and why – like it took a whole book uh, to explain it. So let's talk a moment about Shaka Senghor. All, mm-hmm. all the proceeds of the book, I have to add, are going to helping people who get out of jail stay mm-hmm. out of jail. Mm-hmm. Tell us why you want to focus on the culture that Shaka, am I pronouncing the name right? Yeah, Shaka no, Senghor. Perfect. Uh, tell us a little bit about Shaka. Yeah, so <clears throat> Shaka uh, went to prison when he was 19 years old for a murder. Uh, that he did commit um, and uh, became, you know, a rose to kind of a leadership position in the in a very kind of violent prison gang called uh, the Melanix and um, and spent 19 years in prison, seven of those in solitary confinement. Uh, and uh, the reason that I wanted to tell his story of how he did that um, was several fold. First of all, you know, the big mistake people make on culture is they take too much for granted, make too many assumptions. And it's easy to do in Silicon Valley where I'm from because when an employee comes to you, they have a lot of cultural basis. They're already doing a lot of things right. I mean, you know, and it's everything from simple things where they know how to show up to an interview on time and they know how to go through that process to they've had like some kind of schooling and education and like, you know, which includes kind of a, uh, cultural background and how educated people behave. And then they've probably worked at a Silicon Valley company that had some elements. When you get a guy in prison, they don't have any of that. They don't. They have almost nothing culturally that you can use because the way you get to prison is you come from a very broken culture. Uh, and that, you know, that gets you into behavior that gets you locked up. 
And so he had to start from first principles on everything, which is an amazingly uh, instructive uh, way to understand how culture works. But the other like remarkable thing about Shaka was he got to the top of the gang, he ran it very effectively, but then he realized he didn't like the culture and changed it and uh, and had to change himself to do that. So that transformation process, I thought, was super interesting as well. And what, what organization are you working with that the proceeds of the book are going to to help ex-cons stay out of, of prison? Yeah, so there's several. Uh, one is, I won't name them all, but the Anti-Recidivism Coalition uh, out of L.A., uh, Scott Budnick's organization, and then uh, Cut50, um, which is, was founded by uh, my friend Van Jones, or two of them. Let, let's talk a little bit about VC Today. There seems to be a whole lot more venture capital firms now than there were 10, 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. How, how has that competition impacted the way venture capital is practiced in general, and does it have any impact on Andreessen Horowitz? Well, so I'd say, first of all, like the reason there's so much more money is um, my partner Mark was right, and software is eating the world. Mm -hmm. And so what's happened is, you know, as we discussed earlier, it used to be we just sold technology to technology companies, and that kind of made the market for new technology companies just not that big. Now, every business is becoming a software business, and so the market has greatly expanded, so there needs to be more money to fund all these, you know, new ideas. Um, the money coming in has kind of changed the landscape uh, a bit in that, you know, the tiers, the kinds of venture capital that you can get are different. You know, there's uh, seed funds and pre-seed funds and A-round firms and B-round firms and, you know, growth firms. And then there's even now kind of substitutes for the public markets, you know, like SoftBank. Um for us, uh, the kind of increased number of firms, I mean, it, it does change things tactically. There is this other aspect, though, of venture capital, which we benefit from, which is uh, unlike other asset classes. So if you look at um, whatever, you know, stocks or bonds or real estate or so forth, like the top managers uh, for like the 80s are never the top managers for the 90s are never the top managers no for the persistency 2000s. no persistence among the top managers because you know it's a an open playing field so to speak um, but venture capital the top managers are super persistent like so, sequoia has been a top firm for you know 50 years mm -hmm. uh, and the reason for that is um, the best entrepreneurs will only work with the best firms and so if you're in the top tier, um, you you don't compete with anybody who's not in the top tier. And there are only about four or five firms in that class. And so us being one of them, we always compete with the same mm -hmm. kind of four or five. Uh, so it doesn't matter if there's more money coming from left or right or whatever, because look, to build a company, it's great to have the money, but there's other things that you need. For example, like how do you attract, with so many startups out there, how do you attract employees to come to your company. And, you know, a lot of that is who did you get money from? Did you get money from the smartest guys, the best guys, or did you get money from somebody nobody heard of who just has some money? <laughs> and then like that becomes a spiral for you because you don't get the best employees, you don't build the best product. And then, you know, you don't get the customers, you don't get the money and you go out of business. So, so cumulative advantage is a real thing. Absolutely. In venture capital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is probably 
the most the driving factor of returns, much more than um, you know whatever how smart I am. Really, yeah. you're going to say, "Wow, that that's a fascinating statement." So, if you are fortunate enough to be funded by one of the very top tier firms, the statistical odds, the probabilities of you as a startup succeeding are a little higher, a, a lot, lot higher, higher a, a lot, lot higher, higher, a lot higher than a builds. second or third tier firm. Oh yeah, no question. Now, we, look, you may have an irrepressible product um, that just goes viral and berserk, and then you know that uh, yeah that that can conquer a lot. Although even with that, um, the counterfactual is yeah, how would it yeah, have done with a top tier firm? Well, and then if you do happen to have a competitor funded by a top tier firm who's going to get better employees, then that could be a real problem for huh. you. You know, that, that's, that's actually, you know, a lot of the Facebook MySpace thing. You know, Facebook just had better people doing better work. Huh. Uh, that, yeah. That's quite interesting. You mentioned SoftBank as a um, alternative to public markets. Mm -hmm. Is that still the case post WeWork, post Uber? Have has a little bit of the blush come off that rose? I know. They're already, the Saudis are renegotiating mm -hmm. the profit split and trying to lower fees and everything. Yeah. And they're working on raising a second fund, sure. which was originally going to be another $100 billion. I don't think they, I don't imagine they're anywhere close to that in commitments these days. Yeah. What does SoftBank mean to the public markets? Well, so I think, you know, it's a very bold idea. And, you know, that, that, that was certainly the proposition to kind of new companies is like, you don't need to go public. We'll give you or we'll invest 500 million or a billion or, you know, in WeWork's or case, 10 billion 18 or, billion right. yeah, uh, dollars into you. And, uh, you know, I think that definitely over the long term for it to be significant and to change uh, kind of the landscape of venture capital and public markets, it's got to work. Uh and so, you know, like the jury's still out on it. It's mm -hmm. not done yet. Um, but, you know, like terrible PR doesn't help. Uh, but, you know, even I couldn't tell you the impact of the WeWork PR on entrepreneurs yet because we're just too early into it. But, um, you know, that's something that they definitely have to manage. So I'm trying to remember the name of the study um, and I'm drawing a blank on it. There has been a study that specifically looked at the rate at which venture capital firms were forming and raising capital. Mm -hmm. And in the 90s, it was at a certain level. It ticked up in the 2000s, and it really ticked up post-crisis, like 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. And then 2017, in walks the 800-pound gorilla with a $100 billion <laughs> fund. Yeah. Forget the future, and we'll let the jury decide on that. What was the impact on things like valuation and raising money of the SoftBank Vision Funds since they launched in 2017? Did did they really shake things up and affect things? Well, I think they um, they definitely affected the companies they invested in. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say more so than the landscape itself, because it was such a like a unique slash unusual deal. There were some like regular deals that they did, like they put money into Slack and, you know, that was kind of in a very regular way, just like they just look like a growth investor. Right. But in many companies, they wrote, you know, quite enormous checks and, uh, you know, with the expectation that the company would live up to deploying that money. And I think, you know, some of, you know, when people write the retrospective on WeWork, um, you know, like some of what 
was distorting for WeWork was they already had a very ambitious plan. Right. And then SoftBank uh, encouraged them to be more ambitious. And the difficulty with a new company and that kind of idea is if you if you're an entrepreneur, and this gets back to what we talked about earlier about how Mark and I met, but uh, you know you have always like not one good idea, but you usually have like six or seven like really good ideas. And you know he, the WeWorks were all named We something, but uh, we live, we work, yeah, we yeah. school, whatever. Yeah, we, we think. school. Yeah, yeah. So you had all those good ideas. Um, the problem is that from a talent perspective there are only a few people who can get you to product market fit on any of those ideas in your company. So like you just very quickly dilute yourself. So if you, if you do like your top idea, even if it's, your not your best idea, there's a real chance you can make it work. But if you do your top 10 ideas, none of them are going to work. And that's almost guaranteed. And because you've diluted your talent too much, it's not, you've, it's not a money issue. It's a talent issue. And so you know, when you, and the problem is entrepreneurs don't know whether their first idea is better than their 10th idea. So that was the yeah. question you immediately made. And me I, think I put of. myself in that category. Like it's very hard to distinguish which is your best idea. Don't you, don't really good ideas require the marketplace to validate them or a little bit of baptism of fire for the entrepreneurs to sharpen their skills and be able to get their best ideas to the market? No, exactly. So uh, uh, a very good friend of mine wrote a paper called The Idea Maze, which describes the- Oh, sure. Just I that, remember. Yeah, Who wrote that? Uh, Balaji Srinivasan. I remember seeing that. And yeah. in fact, uh, your partner, Mark, talks about The Idea Maze yes. and is surprised that entrepreneurs come to Andreessen Horowitz not having read it. Yeah, no, it's 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 one of the I would say most important things to read if you're an entrepreneur, um, because it describes that process. You have an idea, um, but any idea, there's tons of stuff wrong with it because it hasn't right. It hasn't bumped into the market and the partners and the competitors and the technology landscape and all the things it's going to bump into. And so, as you hit all those things, you have to navigate your way through the maze to the actual product. And doing that with one product is like. It's hard enough. Yeah, I mean, it's like it is like the kind of business equivalent of giving birth. It's very <laughs> difficult. So, like having tried t- ten babies simultaneously, like all the babies are going to die, and that's that's I think what can happen if you get a giant infusion of cash. And so that's the thing that now, on the other hand, and Peter Thiel describes as well, there's zero to one, which is getting to this product market fit, and then right. there's one to n, and I think that. You know, in theory, SoftBank could certainly put money in something that was going one to N and help it get to one to N faster. Um, but you know, like we'll we'll see if that's how it works or if it works in a different way. Is is too much capital potentially a burden for either the venture fund like the Vision Fund or for a scrappy startup um, like WeWorks? Is that just too much money for a young, untested, sort of green CEO to deal with? Well, I think that it is for a company if it causes the ideas that you try to implement to multiply. Mm-hmm. If you do that, then then that's going to be very dangerous. Um, As opposed to take that one idea and see it through to its natural conclusion. Yeah, take it global. Mm-hmm. Um, that like if you need more money to take the market faster, that's a more scalable activity. It's straightforward. There's kind of known methods and so forth. You can throw money at it, and if you waste it. It's not destructive, but if you throw money at product, 
that's destructive. Huh. And so it's a it's a tricky balance. Um, and yeah, no, it's it's something that they sure surely have to struggle with. So in in the book, you quote your partner Mark Andreessen. You only ever experience two emotions, euphoria and terror. I find that lack of sleep enhances both. Yeah, that's a description of entrepreneurship. So yeah. so is all that extra capital uh, not helpful if it or or does that remove Well, it takes away some of the euphoria and terror and I think that that is actually dangerous because it's that level of focus caused by that. Like you have to be able to handle the emotion, but like nobody ever very hard to build a great company without that kind of feeling of, oh my God, I've got one bullet and I have to hit the target. And if I don't, like that's it. Like the level of focus you have to have to do that is kind of what makes the company, the culture, like everything gets built off of that. And um, yeah, so if you take that, uh... like if you take that away, you just have like a, you, you know, you, you just end up with a big, fat, slow, bureaucratic startup, you know, it, which big Does, companies don't execute that well generally, but they do. They are so large, they can just p- pound you with money. But they've got a sustainable underlying engine like Google Search or something. Right. If you don't have that underlying engine, you just have the money somebody gave you and you start acting like that, that that, that can be super, super destructive. So I'm I'm fascinated by your concept of the hard thing about hard things which mm-hmm. is effectively spoiler alert hey there's no formula for doing this there's no framework that's what makes them hard it's a case of first impression um that was a really insightful observation does that come from your work as an entrepreneur or is that something you really see as a venture capitalist or both well, I, I think it was mainly my work as an entrepreneur. I think that um, it crystallized being a venture capitalist, working with other entrepreneurs, realizing that my experience was far from unique. Um, but yeah, and, and I think this is what's wrong with most of the business literature as they try to put it into some framework, like here are the three steps you need to go good to great or be a built to last or whatever Jim Collins says. Um, because it's not like... it. it it is very situational. It's very specific to your company and your product and your market and your people and, and all these kinds of things. And so, um, yeah, the things that you're doing, y- you know, y- you have to understand it at a different level. There's not the ABCs of building a company. You can follow the 30 steps of building a company that anybody puts out and get nowhere all the time. And, you know, the same with the culture, uh, you know, with the, uh, the new book like people have these step-by-step oh have an offsite and like you know create your values and then like put it in people's performance reviews that doesn't do anything other than get you a hypocritical culture where people mm-hmm. go yeah we have those values on the wall that we don't live uh so you know you have to get to the real thing um in other know, words create your own values don't follow someone well, else's understand how step. systems work you uh-huh. know know how well it's not even so much create your own values it's like you got to focus on like how do you get people to behave the way you want them to. I'll give you an example is so like Tom Coughlin could have put values on the wall that said like we're going to be very detail oriented and we're going to like care about like everything more than anybody else does. And like nobody would have done anything. But what he did is he said, here's the rule. If you're on time, you're late. Right. And get if you meetings. came to a meeting on time, he'd fine you like thousands of dollars because you needed to be there five minutes early. Now, like, why is that better? 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. One, like as soon as he says that, if you're on time, you're late, you go like, where the hell am I? Like, what is this? Why is he saying that? And when you ask yourself, why is he saying that? Then what you're going to find out is because like, we're out working everybody. We're paying more attention to everything than anybody. Like the way we practice, every detail that we go over, like we're going, we're going to be here before everybody. Then um, <clears throat> and for you people- run into it every time you go to a meeting. Like you can't like, get away from that cultural value. Whereas like you put it on the damn wall and you see it once a year in your performance review, come on. Right. Like that's not doing anything. And for people who may not be familiar with it, uh, Coughlin was the coach of the New York Giants, won two Super Bowls, mm-hmm. wrote a book, um, Earn the Right to Win, yeah. <laughs> which I do not love sports books as business metaphors. This is a great book, really, really comes across. Yeah. His meeting, we'll, we'll talk about this later, his whole concept of meetings. If you're not there and and prepared and thinking about what's going to happen at the meeting, like you can't show up at the line of scrimmage a moment before the ball is snapped. And figure it out. It's yeah. all the prep work that goes into it. He he was really a very deep philosopher. Yeah, and a cultural philosopher. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. We have been speaking with Ben Horowitz. He is the author of What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture, If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things venture capital related. You can find that at Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Ben, thank you for doing this. I have been chasing you down for a good couple of years <laughs> to right, join well, I'm glad me. glad you cut me. I, uh, I eventually had to work my way through the rest of all the employees at Andreessen Horowitz, <laughs> and now I have yes. you in my, in my lair. I have to ask about the origin of A16Z. I know that there are 16 letters between mm-hmm. the A yep. in Andreessen and the Z in Horowitz. How did that come about? And full disclosure, when I was in your office, mm-hmm. you guys gave us some swag. I have that hat, which yeah. I wear all the time. I really enjoy it. Great. Where, where did A16Z come from? Well, so we named the the reason we named the firm, first of all, Andreessen Horowitz, was uh, the big question we got when we were raising money from the LPs was they were like, hey, you guys are like already kind of successful entrepreneurs. Why are you really going to stay doing this venture capital thing? We think you're just going to like raise the money and then quit. And Really? We yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's that was a big objection. And huh. uh, so I actually got the idea. I was like, Mark, like, if we name it after us, then they'll stuck be stuck to, to right. it, and then they'll know we're stuck. Was, they and know so, we're serious. Yeah, so that was Andreessen Horowitz. and then But then we had an immediate problem, which is uh, 
nobody could spell that if they were going to send us email or something. Two E's, two S's, and Andreessen, not an easy name to spell. Not at all. And so I came up with the idea. So when I was an engineer, like way back in the Stone Age. It's uh, such a geek thing to do. Yeah, we used to have to internationalize code um, to make it work, you know, make it go from like whatever single to double byte uh, strings and all this kind of thing. And so we called that internationalization, and we abbreviated it I-18 and I-18 letters in the gotcha. end. And I was like, oh, this will be great. We'll call it A-16-Z, and, and all the engineers will get it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and the domain was easily available. Not that yeah. Andreessen Horowitz probably wasn't available. Yeah, no, that was available, too. It was just uh, a nightmare to write. <laughs> so uh, when I had um, your CFO or COO, Scott Cooper? Scott Cooper, yeah. So- he was in his book. Mm-hmm. He's telling the story that essentially, post Opsware Loud Cloud, you and Mark were effectively, I think he called you checkbook VCs. You were funding companies literally out of, you know, writing a check to people. Yeah, yeah. And, you were. and he didn't say this. I put these words in his mouth, but he's like a very. He's a lawyer. He's very rigorous. He's very structured. Yes. I pictured him like, what are you guys doing? Wait, you're just writing checks out of your purse? Like, I pictured him losing his mind and saying, no, no, no. We have to set up a legal structure. We have to get organized. There's a lot of, um, you know, a little urban legend about the origin stories of Mm -hmm. of how how accurate is you guys were just kind of like yeah let's give these guys money and give those guys money well we I, I mean we were but like we started out as an angel fund before we even like formed the kind of structure of the firm and so forth which now we have many entities so mm-hmm. scott is very happy with that i can't even count all the <laughs> entities we have uh but you know like we would meet entrepreneurs and we were writing you know checks for 100 grand 200,000 i mean that does sound like a lot of money but you know, in, in the our world, world of venture, it's, in our it's, world, it's small, right? It's seed or angel rounds, and yeah. So if we loved an entrepreneur, we would, you know, his write fifty them a grand. Check. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, a lot of those turned out uh, really, you know, quite well. So, um, what were some of those first uh, checkbook firms? Uh, funding. What companies did you fund? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. So, well, th- there was a few that were. I mean, like probably the best checks were like things like. Uh, LinkedIn and oh, Twitter, I think, were probably the you know two of the best. But uh, you know, one that I really um, meant a lot to me was uh, a company called AppNexus. I don't know if you know them. No. They're here in New York, but uh, they sold to AT and T for well over a billion dollars. And mm-hmm. um, you know, they those guys, you know, it was just a bet on Brian, the CEO, and uh, man, like he was tough. He just went through everything and you know, changes of the business, like, you know, people giving up on him and all these kinds of things. And he just kept going and, and built quite the company. So. so so a couple of my favorite quotes from the book, and I'm not, again, I apologize. I don't know yeah. which book this is from. I think this is from the Hard Thing book. No matter who you are, you need two kinds of friends in your life. Yeah, it's Explain thing. that. Yeah, so that was, you know, it was just kind of, I was trying to come up with a... The way to uh, describe my friend Bill Campbell, uh, you know, late Bill Campbell. Um, um, was yeah. a chairman of Intuit? Chairman of VSCO yeah, and then chairman of Intuit, um, you know, and kind of legend around Silicon Valley. He mentored Steve Jobs and Larry Page and a bunch of other guys. But uh, Someone called him, the uh, that's in the, the book, the Trillion yeah. Dollar Coach. Yeah, Trillion Dollar Coach, right, exactly. 
but you know, the way I always saw him was, um, you know, there, there, there's two kinds of friends you need. One is, you know, if something good happens in your life, who do you want to call because they're going to be as excited about it as you would be yourself. Like, mm-hmm. and then you have very few friends like that, you know, right. like your fake, and that's always a great line between like fake friends and real friends. Cause your fake friends, you know, like they hear it and they pretend they're happy, but they're not really happy. They're, they're, they're like, they're man, he's and... ahead of me again. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, the second kind is like, if you're really in trouble, like, you know, like you're in jail and you have one phone call to make, who are you going to call? And, you know, both those guys for me were Bill Campbell. Huh. That, that, that's quite, um, quite fascinating. Um, another quote from that book, what's the worst thing that could happen? What would I do if we went bankrupt? And you described mm. that as a very freeing question. Yeah. Yeah. No. So that was, uh, so, you know, I didn't know what cold sweats were until I became a CEO mm-hmm. and then, you know, I'd be, you know, it'd be three o'clock in the morning. I'd be wet, um, and you know, awake and my guts would be boiling, and I'd be like, oh, this is what they meant. And so, you know, we were in a lot of trouble. Um, the company was definitely headed for ba- bankruptcy. And I asked myself the question. I was like, okay, like, yes, what, what's the worst thing that could happen? So, like, what is the worst thing that could happen to the company? And I was like, okay, the worst thing that could happen is we'll go bankrupt. I'll lay everybody off. All of our customers who trusted us would fail. Like, all of the investors who trusted me would lose their money. And like, I'd have no friends. And I was thinking, wow, that's like pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so then I, then my next thought was like, well, is there a way to kind of, oh, and then the, the last part of it was really essential, which is, well, maybe after all that, I could buy the intellectual property out of the bankrupt thing and make it into a new company. Um, and then I thought, whoa. Why wait for bankruptcy? Yeah, maybe I could do that before we went bankrupt. And so that, that that's how LoudCloud became Opsware? Exactly. Huh. And that worked out pretty well. Yeah, no, thankfully, um, it did. It did. I would probably not be here today had that not worked out. You know, speaking of failure, like right. that failure would have, my life would have been very different, I think, if, it, if we had failed at that. Why did LoudCloud not work? Was it just too early in the evolution of bandwidth, server, technology, et cetera, for- like that was Amazon Web Services a, yeah. a, a good couple of years before. Well, and I would say all those are true. And then maybe the most fatal thing was it was uh, built pre-virtualization, uh, which there's a technology called um, virtualization, which kind of transformed um, your ability to do ca- cloud computing cost-effectively, which is you could take a, a single computer and make it look like many computers. and breakthrough technology from a company called VMware many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really kind of changed the nature of it. VMware, I, uh, EMC bought them? I'm trying to remember yeah, who EMC, purchased them. EMC yeah, EMC bought them. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. And uh, that was another giant uh, pre-Amazon cloud uh, data storage company back mm-hmm. from late 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no absolutely. One of the biggest. Uh, there was one other question I wanted to pull out one of your quotes that I thought was so interesting. Oh, um, this one. I love this quote. A healthy company encourages people to share bad news. A company that discusses its problems freely and openly can quickly solve them. A company that covers up its problem frustrates everyone involved. Describe yeah. that. Well, look, um, you know, there's this old saying that like MBAs come with a lot of the time, which is, you know, don't bring me a problem unless you have the solution. And that's 
kind of good, except for what happens when they don't have the solution. Mm -hmm. um, and then what you're really saying is, don't, don't bring, bring me problems. <laughs> uh, and that can become like pervasive in the culture where, you know, and I always uh, liken it to the uh, Wicked Witch and the Wiz where, you know, she sung that song, ain't nobody bring me no bad news. You know, like and you don't want the Wiz Wicked Witch running the company because you need you need to know what's wrong because the faster you know it, uh, the better it is. Uh, and it, the slower you know it, it becomes a kimchi problem. The deeper you bury it, the hotter it gets. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but it's a very much a cultural thing because people don't want to be associated with problems. So, you know, getting them to bring them to you, you know, there, there has to be some kind of like reward in the culture for doing that. Hmm. And one of the things we didn't get to during the, the earlier uh, segments I wanted to ask about I, I work in the financial services industry. Diversity is a big problem there. Mm -hmm. um, it tends to be male-dominated. It tends to be not a lot of people of color. Uh, I know a lot of firms are working on that, but its progress has been slow. You guys have, have created specifically a cultural leadership fund to try and change that. Tell us about the lack of diversity in venture capital and and what Andreessen Horowitz is doing about that. Yeah, so like, let me, this is big. So there's a chapter in the new book called Genghis Khan, Master of Inclusion, which kind of goes through this theory. And uh, it's a very, I think it's a very important topic. And it's something that, you know, generally Silicon Valley is getting exactly wrong. And I think Wall Street probably the same. And it's not intention. So like the first misinterpretation is people think, oh, everybody is racist and sexist and finance and, and venture capital, and that's not actually the thing. Um, and in fact, starting from that point actually makes you uh, effectively systemically racist and sexist, and I'll tell you how. Because then you go, oh, I need you know, women minorities in my company, and then you hire them, and then everybody in your firm knows they came in the side door, right? the women and minority door, as opposed to the front door. Um, and the real problem is you can't see the talent. So uh, I'll give you a metaphor on this. So my friend Steve Stout, uh, who ran Sony Urban Music, calls me up one day and he talks in these kind of ways. He goes, Ben, I ran Sony Urban Music. And I was like, yes, I know that, Steve. But I also knew he was going to tell me a longer story. Right. <laughs> and he goes... But it wasn't Sony Urban Music; it was Sony Black Music. Um, but we couldn't call it Urban Music because or Black Music because that would have been racist. So we had to call it Urban Music. I was like, "Well, that's kind of silly." And he goes, "No, that wasn't what was silly." He says, "Because we called it Urban Music, I couldn't market in rural areas. Like, no black people live in rural areas." And I goes, "Wow, that's really dumb." He's like, "Ben, you're not even listening to me. I had Sony Urban Music. I had Michael Jackson. What huh. white people don't like Michael Jackson? Right? It's not black music. It's music." And I was like, oh my God, that's what we're doing in Silicon Valley. We call it diversity, but it's really urban talent. It's this, like we've categorized it into something that it doesn't need to be categorized in because we haven't trained ourselves to see that kind of talent. So just give you an example of what I mean by that. So at my firm, when we started, um, we were like, you know, we were like every other firm. I had Frank Chen and he was running research and everybody in research was Asian. And I had, you know, Margaret, she was running marketing and everybody in marketing was a woman. And I had, you know, Cooper, everybody he hired was an investment banker. And like, it just went on like that. 
people hire people who look like them, sound like them, have their background. Well, look, I know what I'm good at. I value it highly and I can test for it in an interview. So mm-hmm. by default, that's what I'm hiring. And so I go to Margaret and I go, Margaret, what is in your criteria where no men can get the job in marketing? Like, what is it? And you know what she said to me? Helpfulness. Really? And I was like, oh, snap. I don't know any helpful men. Huh. And But then, but like, here's the real dumb thing about what I was doing is we're a venture capital firm. We're in the services business. You don't think helpfulness is important in the services business? Like to be able to anticipate somebody's needs to get to it before they know you do? You don't think that's a differentiation? Sure is. And so like we didn't have that in our criteria for anybody's profile other than hers. When we added it, that's all we did. We don't have anywhere like a head of diversity, a diversity program, nothing. We're 180 people. We're 52% women. All we had to do is actually be able to see the talent. Mm-hmm. We're talent blind. And so the right thing to measure is- Talent blind. Yeah. The right thing to measure on diversity and inclusion is what is it like like from a attrition standpoint, employee satisfaction standpoint for your diverse groups? Because the only way you get that to be where it should be is if you can see the talent. And if you can see the talent- Guess what? You're not going to have a pipeline problem. You're not going to have any of those other problems that people run into because you can see it and the talent Mm -hmm. is out there. And so when you get to the cultural leadership fund, people think that's actually a a diversity idea. It's not. It's actually a bet on black exceptionalism. And what I mean by that is this is us recognizing that in the last hundred years, every new musical art form from jazz to blues to rock and roll to hip-hop was invented by the same group. Mm -hmm. African-Americans. African-Americans. Almost all new fashion ideas were created by African-Americans. Lately, almost all the important new visual artists, African-American. What does that mean? It means like you have a group that's genius at moving consumer behavior. Like we can see that. So we partnered with the best leaders, people like Quincy Jones, Sean Mm -hmm. Combs, so forth, where they would invest in our cultural leadership fund, we could then connect them to our entrepreneurs, get an advantage on moving consumer behavior, and then we just take the money and put it back into getting more African-Americans into tech. So for us, it's a bet on talent that we can see that the other venture firms can't necessarily see, and we're benefiting greatly from that. And we, you know, we win deals all the time on that. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's just the right way to think about right. diversity and inclusion, which is like, how do you gain advantage? And you can't gain advantage if you're running around blind and then changing your criteria to race and gender. Huh. Like, that's not going to get you anything. You just set up urban HR. So you mentioned hip hop um, amongst the list of uh, musical <laughs> yes. uh, inventions from African Americans. Personally. So uh, we're only about five years apart in age, but mm-hmm. my hip-hop fandom kind of stopped with Paul's Boutique and, and Beastie Boys. <laughs> the Beastie Boys. Right. I mean, Paul's <laughs> Boutique is a spectacular album. Oh, I think most is, people yeah. will admit the the scratching and mixing and sampling in oh, that- Oh, Rick Rubin, yeah. Uh, just, just an unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, that was before- the copyright wall came down. So mm-hmm. they were doing stuff that you yes, really yeah, can't yeah, do yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. However, sampling changed a lot. For once sure. They, once they started charging. Right. <laughs> but I, I don't know if it, what, what the basis for my lack of 
because I still listen to new music, but most of it tends to be jazz and pop, new, mm-hmm. new stuff that comes out. How have you managed to stay current in uh, hip hop and, and what are you listening to these days? Oh, well, you know, like I, you know, I think that's an interesting thing to describe. I think the art form really evolved and, um, you know, since Paul's boutique, uh, you know, Rakim was just an amazing breakthrough lyrically uh, and then Dr. Dre musically. Mm-hmm. And then you had the great. I listen know, to Wu-Tang. I'll go, I'll, you know, yeah, I've progressed I mean, somewhat. Yeah, that era. I mean, Wu-Tang, Nas, uh, Jay-Z, uh, Notorious B.I.G. was an amazing kind of era. Um, so th- there's still like very good things happening. I mean, so Young Thug's new album is quite good. Like mm-hmm. I would recommend it highly. Uh, so much fun is the name of the album. Um, I think that uh, you know Da Baby is uh, like everybody loves Da Baby, uh, and he's got a new album out that's pretty good um, that I like. So there's th- there's definitely good new stuff happening. Like Drake is amazing. I, I think he doesn't. You know, because he's he's almost so big that like real hip hop hits don't give him the credit he deserves. But this guy is an absolute genius and uh, is putting out, continues to put out phenomenal music. Mm-hmm. I um I just got a, a a new car not too long ago, and all the new cars have the um the music hard drive that if you mm-hmm. so between the phone and the iPod, I got a bajillion things. Yeah, but every now and then I just bring out a stack of discs and transfer it to the <laughs> to the drive and the past that's amazing right i mean that's what we are the previous car you could use the sd drives this mm-hmm. car you can't take the okay, little you can take your phone on bluetooth no? yeah of course yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know the phone only has you know 512 gigs of music and i, I want to put some of my favorites in but the reason i'm bringing that up is that, that, that's awesome i i brought uh, i i brought out seven James Brown discs yeah. and I transferred um, uh, the James Brown Party People three disc set yeah. and then the Showtime three disc, four disc set. And as I'm listening to all this stuff for the hundredth time, it's amazing how much hip hop pulled vocal samples, beats, yeah. bass lines, uh, rhythms, just, I don't, I, I have a lot of young guys in my office. Mm. Oh, James I don't, Brown was originally like the most sampled guy. Absolutely. I don't yeah, think yeah. people realize yeah. how influential he still is to this day. Amazing. Driving music. It's it's just fascinating. So I've got a tip if you're a James Brown fan. So Huge. there's a there's a show called Tales from the Tour Bus, mm-hmm. Mike Judge. There's two James Brown episodes. You have to they're the most Tales amazing. Tales from thing. the Tour is this yeah. Netflix or uh it's on I think or Cinemax Amazon? or okay. something. But it's uh it is it's an amazing show generally. But mm-hmm. season two, James Brown, amazing. Like really? so, first of all, like just how genius he was, the band he put together, and how incredible they were, and how absolutely nuts out of his mind was. He never really like he barely drunk, and he never did any drugs till he was fifty five, and then he started on Angel Dust. Right. <laughs> like that was his first rock. He didn't Angel do anything does. part way. He <laughs> was yeah, yeah. pedal to the metal. And so, you know, when people see him at the end, they, they wonder like, what the hell happened? It's Angel Dust. And so <laughs> like the, the whole thing is just like a, a crazy tale of, of, of him. So, and it's much better than any of the James Brown movies. Yeah. So last question before I get to my favorite questions. Yeah. What what else are you watching? I mentioned Silicon Valley. What what are you streaming? What are you watching these days? Uh, well, the new season of Mr. Robot, which is one of the great Love it, series. love it. This what is the last a, season, final season. Yeah, what an amazing show The that's first been. season was very stressful. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and it, that was like challenging to work your way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was <laughs> it was very intense. Um, and it, and it continues to be intense. Yeah. Uh, you know, I watched uh, Succession. Um, although a lot of people like that, it's you know, it's a very well done show. I. Little yeah, little bit of um, it touches the the Murdochs a little bit. And yep. I know, and I'm friends with them, and I I feel like it's not fair if you look at it through that lens. But uh, it's still like a super well done show. So if um, if you saw that, did you see loudest voice in the room? I haven't seen that yet. I've, I've so heard it, good it, things about it. it, it yeah. It's the Showtime. I want to say it's a six or eight yeah with four, Russell Crowe, who's amazing in it, and it's yeah. based on the Gabriel Sherman book. Yeah. Really, it's shocking to look at Russell Crowe and say, how did one guy play Roger Ailes? And some of the uh, gladiator yeah. and um, what was the um, a beautiful mind? Like yeah. it's incredible how different his range his is amazing. Really, really well. And then the, the really unusual thing about him to me is he not only has the range, but he also has the intangible. He's a movie star. He's a Humphrey Bogart. Right. He's like a Denzel Washington, Absolutely. like that. But those guys, you know, the most movie stars. They're amazing because they're movie stars, but they don't have range like Robert De Niro. But they don't have that kind of acting range as well. Mm-hmm. So he is—he's really unique. Um, what else? Give me one more thing that you're watching. Um, let's see what else I watched. Uh, I want to give you a good one. By the way, I'm going to have to add this as a regular question because this is a really interesting question. Yeah, I'm trying to think what. Did I, oh, you know what I liked is uh, the uh, Righteous Gemstones. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That righteous it started gemstones. out a little slow, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's the guys who did Vice Principals and Eastbound and Down, mm-hmm. which are both like outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> so now uh, I have your level. I, think, I know exactly. Where I think you are. Righteous Gemstones may be the best of the set. Yeah. So I only have you for a few minutes. Let's uh, get to my favorite questions, and I'm gonna do. Uh, I'm gonna do an abbreviated version of this. Uh, what's the most important thing we don't know uh, about Ben Horowitz? Yeah, I feel like people know so much now. Really? Because um, I think you're kind of an enigma. Your partner yeah. is more public than you are, generally speaking. Yeah, no, he definitely is. Well, I am. I mean, and maybe people don't know this about me, but I am the best barbecuer in all of Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's a really low bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a low <laughs> bar, but like, still, I wear the crown proudly. There, there you go. Um, who were some of your early mentors? You mentioned Bill Campbell has to be on Andy that Grove. List. I would say Andy Grove is really? super high on that list. Just, wow, what an amazing, amazing guy! Actually, the highlight of my professional career was when he asked me to write the uh, new forward to high output management. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I still think that's the best thing I ever wrote in my life is uh, that forward because it just meant so much to me. What an amazing! Amazing human that, being. That's an amazing pair yeah. of uh, mentors. Yeah. Um, what venture capitalists influence the way you think about venture investing? Or maybe I should, knowing mm-hmm. knowing your firm, I should ask who really influenced your approach to venture capitalists. You mentioned Mike Ovitz before. Who else uh, influenced? You? I think, like structurally in the approach, you know, Michael Ovitz in terms of how we run the firm was by far the most influential. I think that you know, in being VCs. Um, you know, we, we knew a lot of the greats. So, you know, Jim Breyer, Vinod Kosla, uh, you know, John Doerr um, were all very influential. You know, Neil Boozery, uh, although he, he he's more of an entrepreneur than a venture capitalist, but mm-hmm. like he certainly was uh, very kind of helpful and influential on at least me early on. Um, those are some of them, yeah. 
Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite things to read, technology-related or not? Mm -hmm. Well, so I have been reading uh, Victor Sebastian's um, Lenin biography, which— uh, that's Vladimir Lenin, Vladimir Ilyich. Uh, that, that's a pretty big book, if I remember correctly. It's a correctly, big right? book. Um, it's just astoundingly amazing, uh, and you know, particularly in today's time, because you know, people people have sort of forgot the hundred year history of communism, mm-hmm. which uh, just a a brief summary: everybody dies. Uh, <laughs> But going the back, end. <laughs> going back through the Bolshevik Revolution, you can really see why. Uh, and it's you know it's a really interesting systems thing because it's marketed as power to the people, and it's the exact opposite thing, which is it's a massive concentration of power where you transfer all the wealth to a very few number of people running the government. It's really power and, to the state. Yeah, it's well, but it's. Too high a level of power. So, like, if you give anybody gets too power, like if there was a company like Evil Corp is in Mr. Robot, mm-hmm. that company would be massively destructive because it's just too high a concentration. So, it's not specific to government or business or anything else. It's just specific to power. And I think the problem with communism is it's just such a big concentration of power. And you really see this. I mean, so just some of the things in the Bolshevik Revolution, you know. The so the first thing is okay. Anybody in government, anybody can do a government job. You know, any peasant could do it because like these are just the rich people who have these jobs, and they're all evil. And so he gives all the jobs to peasants, and within three months of them taking control, there's a famine so bad that they have to put out propaganda to keep parents from eating their children. <laughs> and then like so, coming off that, like what do we do about the famine? Well, we've killed all the rich people so now we got to start killing the kulaks who were farmers with like two horses right and so like this is how it rolls when you kind of give somebody massive power and you're driven on hate of anything and like you know i mean and i understand million. people don't like rich people but like hating anybody um is just a very bad source of uh political ideology so 40 million deaths later what what ends up happening in uh <sighs> communist russia yeah, I mean, you know, like, and, and then we discover it, and then, you know, it's very hard to convert from a system like that into another system as, you know, <laughs> you know we're, we're finding also uh, it's complicated in China, it's complicated. But that's you know, more totalitarian country, yeah. than it is communist. It's but they go of... together, but totalitarian and communism go together because you're going for that concentration of control. Right. Like, you so can't have kind to- So here's, here's the thing on communism that, uh, you know, my friends who have grown up in, you know, Russia and Romania and so forth say it's like people think, oh, Stalin was crazy. Stalin was like, if you read his work and so forth, like he wasn't he's very smart. The problem is you've taken away the carrot. So all you have is a stick. Right. And so if you all you have is a stick, then you need totalitarianism to control the people. You mm-hmm. need to be you need you need, need to, to kill people the when they don't right. go to work because you're not paying them. <laughs> um, that's one book. Give us another. Um, well, you know, I'll reference, let me reference kind of the, the book that I've read over and over again in preparation for this book, which is The Black Jacobins uh, by C.L.R. James, which is, uh, so you'll appreciate this story. It's recommended to me by the late Christopher Hitchens. Oh, really? And all I asked him was like, what book should I read? He's like, oh, the best book, like, is The Black Jacobins, written in 1937, you know. And, really? Yeah, uh, he said this to me maybe like seven, eight years ago. Uh 
And that was the story of the uh, Haitian Revolution and just an amazing book. Uh, Is that how you that know, you, you found its way into this book? Absolutely. You know, that was the kind of, uh, that's the very first thing I read kind of on the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and really, really, really amazing. Hmm. Uh, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I wrote a whole book on how I failed to build the first cloud computing company. Uh, you know, I felt a lot of things. I actually just, um, so one of the, uh, let me tell you like a really, one of the many failures at LoudCloud. So the company, you know, we came out of the gates faster than any company that I've, I've seen since. So in quarter number three, after founding, we booked $27 million in wow. revenue. Like, so like just astounding. And that's when $27 million was a lot of money in 1999. <laughs> uh, and we were growing so fast that the fire marshal was threatening to shut down the company. Um, so I had to get you were new just real adding estate. too many bodies. Yeah, and so I had to get more real estate, um, and so I kind of delegated it to uh, my finance team, and um, and I just didn't pay any attention. I was just like, "Get us more real estate. We got to get it before they shut us down." So we lease a building. Um, I sign off on it. $30 million in restricted cash to hold it down. And it was uh, kind of at the time, I think it was like $10 a square foot a month. Sounds Within pricey. two months of that, oh, it was very pricey. Within two months of that dot-com crash, real estate in the next 12 months dropped to 99 cents a square foot. Right. Like we had a layoff. We never really in earnest moved into the building. Um, and I had this $30 million bill uh, you know, on a startup company, it was which was just absolutely killing us. And you know, the thing I learned was like I knew when I delegated it, it was probably a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want to deal with it for even five minutes. And uh, you know, what I learned is like, if you see pain, darkness, failure, you have to run towards it. You can't run away from it when you're CEO. Embrace uh, the pain. Run straight at it. Huh. So let me move this in a different direction. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not in the office? Other, or uh, barbecue? Well, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I listen to hip hop. I've got like an amazing sound system. I am a big sports fan. So I guess. give us who's your sound system? What's your amp and what's your speakers? So, By the way, uh, this there, this question. Is for seventeen people. Yeah, like it's a that's all of us. It's a little company left. called Aristeca, <laughs> um, uh -huh. and they they have this amazing technology, which is it, there's a software layer kind of that runs over the top. That like a problem with speaker systems is certain sounds hit you first, right? Like, so like the vocals, the guitars, the bass don't all hit you at the same time. Right. They hit you at different speeds. This makes it so they all hit you at the exact same time, and the clarity on the system is just unbelievable. I promise we are going to get yeah. emails from audio engineers mm. challenging that. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll see. We'll yeah, see what no, the pushback that, is. There. I'd love to see. Uh, it. My final uh, two questions, because I know uh, we have to get you elsewhere, right? Um, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in the venture capital world? Uh, well, I'd say do something else before you go into venture capital because the most important thing in venture capital is understanding the, uh, or one of the most important things is understanding the process of how companies get built. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit difficult to do from the outside. So if you can do that from the inside, 
and then you know maybe go into venture capital later. I think that works better. Uh, and then the other, the other thing is right. If venture capital is like one of these dumb fields, and that doesn't prepare you very much for anything else, right? So like if you have a ten year career and it doesn't work, then that you know you're really starting from scratch. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur or you work at a startup, then there's many things you can do off. You of got that. you got something to fall back on. And finally, what do you know about the world of venture investing today? You wish you knew when you guys were getting launched in the uh, late nineties. I'm sorry. The late two thousands. Um. Well, I. That's a great question, isn't it? Though. Yeah, I think um, probably. I wish we knew more about the investing process. Like, what did good investing process look like? I think it's something that we've learned over the years, and you know, we've had to develop. Uh, and we're, you know, like I would say we're way, way, way better at it now than when we started. And I think, you know, like at this point, I can tell that we're as good as the best firms because, you know, we end up landing like any deal, you know, just by the deals we pick, like you can tell by, you know, what the really smart competitors pick. So we've gotten much better at it, but it, it was something we learned kind of the hard way, I would hmm. say. Quite, quite interesting. Yeah. Ben, thank you for being so generous with your time. Yeah. We have been speaking with Ben Horowitz, co-founder and general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and author of the new book, What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you can see any of the previous 287 conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Karen O'Brien is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.